0: I love that song. I love the thought behind it. If you ever take any time to just consider that prayer, it is quite a simple prayer. Father, not my will, but yours be done. But if we're honest with ourselves and with one another, that'd be one of the hardest prayers we ever pray, right? Because in some sense, when we pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done, we are pray we are relinquishing control. We're relinquishing any right or any hold on the outcome. We are simply saying, I have a will. You have a will. I know what I want, but I'm giving this one to you and totally saying, at, at the end of the day, I want your will to be done. And I honestly think that when we as Christians can pray that and pray that earnestly, really and genuinely pray it and mean it, that that does deepen our roots spiritually in Christ because as we begin to trust Christ more and more and more and more, we will pray that more and more and more. Now, I'm not up here saying I've mastered that art. Uh, I love to think that I hand things over to the will of God, and when things are going swimmingly, God's sovereignty is beautiful to me, when it's hard... When we look at things happening that we can't really explain or we don't understand why, that's not, it's not fun to pray, not my will but yours be done. But beloved, could we get there as Christians who are being transformed more and more into the image of Christ? The goal is to get to that spot, not to laugh at grief, not to laugh at hard things, not to tell people, don't bother crying because God is in control. No, that's not cool. Don't ever say that to anybody. But it's, this, it's relinquishing this hold on something that we can't control anyway to the one who can. And that ministers, That song ministers to me so much. It's just this constant reminder to come back round to that truth. Please open your Bibles up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. There we, we resume our study this morning. We will finish chapter 2 today, God willing. This last little paragraph in chapter 2, as you know, we've been looking um, at... We started at some point earlier looking at what it means to be a a good soldier of Christ and then looking at what it means to be a worker approved by God and and being someone who's uh, honorable and who's used of God in honorable ways for honorable means to bring honor and glory to Christ. And we're still in that vein. So we're still in the vein of what it means to be an honorable man or woman of the Lord, to be useful for God and His kingdom for His glory. This morning as we're looking at the paragraph before us, because Paul is still kind of articulating to Timothy, so if, if we're going to be honorable, if we're going to be truly people who are used of God, vessels of honor uh, that bring glory to God and, and help, help uh, lay down precepts and, and good ideas and good philosophy for people to live by, then this is how it has to happen. These are, these are things that we have to do. So in other words, though we're saved by grace through faith, there are still things we have to do. There are still things that we have to accomplish, that we are still duty-bound as Christians obligated to live and be, to live in certain ways and to be and do certain things. And so that's kind of where Paul is this morning here in Second Timothy chapter 2. We're looking at verses 22 through 26 this morning. So please now turn your attention to the Scriptures themselves. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible inerrant word. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, in the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, your word is before us, and I pray now that you would use this time to draw us in deeper, to draw us in deeper, Father, to the truths of Scripture that our lives may be more and more in line and congruent with Jesus. Transform us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's a fair statement to say to pursue one thing is the act of choice to avoid another. You might not think of it that way, but I think it's fair to say to pursue one thing is the act of choice to avoid another. Now, where do we see this play out? In practical matters, for those of us who are married, right, when we chose to pursue our spouse, that one person, that one man or woman, we chose to pursue this one person to the avoidance of other people. We're going to pursue this one person in this way, and we're not going to pursue other people in the same way. In fact, our pursuit of this one person means that we are going to avoid certain relationships and and, and positions and, and circumstances with these other people because this is what we pursue. We're avoiding this. I'm pursuing her, I'm pursuing him, I'm avoiding these other things. Now, that may sound bad, like, well, and I'm not advocating that once you get married, you have no friends. <laughs> that's not the point. It's not, I'm not advocating that you have no other relationships in your life. But when you're married, there is no other human relationship in your life that's like that one. That's unique. That's, that's a special bond between you and one other person where you are agreeing we just talked about in our in our adult Bible hour. You're agreeing to walk together in a very meaningful way. And so what that means is, is you're not walking with other people in that way. So you, you're going to love this person in a way that you won't love others. In fact, many of us in our vows said the very phrase, forsaking all others. We use that. I use that in my vows. Rachel used it in hers with each other that we were agreeing, we were vowing, we were telling God and witnesses, I am forsaking everybody else for the sake of this one. And so there is a pursuit and there's an avoidance. There's a pursuit and there's a flight away from, and these things happen simultaneously. So when we, when we decide to pursue one thing, it is an act of choice to not pursue others. That's exactly what's happening. And so when we look at what Paul is doing here with Timothy, that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy in this final paragraph of chapter 2. Pursue this thing, don't pursue this thing. Embrace this thing, avoid this thing because Paul is setting the table for Timothy because these two things now are mutually exclusive. If we're going to pursue Christ, we have to flee from the world. If we're going to embrace truth, we have to avoid falsehood. Now, by by using these terms, please, I'm just going to set the matter straight here. But by avoid, I don't mean that we don't interact with. We have to interact with things that we don't agree with. By avoid, what I do mean is that we are not embracing them in the way that we embrace truth. By fleeing, we're not, we're, it doesn't mean that we'll never have issue to deal with here. It means that our act of pursuit is for the things of Christ. That's what Paul is, is getting at. Well, really, when you look at what Paul does here in 2 Timothy, it is very common in Paul's letters, this positive-negative approach, do this, don't do that, put on this, put off that. Engage this, disengage from that. That's Paul's common approach when he is talking about biblical principle. In the Christian life, we are called to to die to much of the world that we might live for Christ. And when we look at what is the simple, practical application of Jesus' command to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily, it is what Paul is doing. It is the call to flee sin, flee from the flesh, flee from the world and pursue Christ, pursue truth, pursue His statutes. It's that put off the world and put on Christ motif that Paul does in every letter he writes to some degree or another. And so we have things that we have to do and things that we need to avoid. We need to indulge some things. We need to abstain from some things. We need to, when, we, when we think about pursuing righteousness, it means that there is a fight and flight motif This doesn't become mutually exclusive like it does sometimes in psychological terms. When we fight, a part of the fight in the Christian life is flight, right? So part of the fight in the Christian life is fleeing from the things that would become obstacles to us in our faith. And part of the fight, the act of, and part of the flight, rather, is fighting for truth in God's kingdom, stepping away from what is false back into what is true, We need to keep that paradigm before us. It's so valuable. Because here's the thing. When we pursue righteousness, we need to fight, we need to flee, and we need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to guide us to know when to do what. Because here's the problem. I think sometimes as Christians we're so quick to flee when we should fight. And sometimes... We're really ready for the fight when really we should take a step back in flight. And so what is the Holy Spirit's work in all this? It's constantly given us the wisdom to engage or disengage, engage, disengage, stand here, fall back here. Any good military strategist will tell you that fight and flight is part of a great military strategy for victory. The same is true for the Christian walking by the Spirit. The final verses of chapter 2 are in the context of, of Paul, as I said earlier, teaching on how to be useful to God. And so the basic trait of all Christians is that we are actively pursuing the righteousness of Christ. When you read pursue righteousness, when you read that pursue righteousness, is he writing to Timothy? Yeah. He's writing to you too. He's writing to me too. That is the prescription for Christianity 101. What does it mean to follow after Christ? Well, at the very least, what it means is that we pursue righteousness. We'll look at that in more detail here in just a moment. Because when we pursue righteousness, beloved, it has implications for what we believe and how we live our lives. The pursuit of righteousness will impact what we believe and how we live our lives. So it it impacts the head, the heart, and the hands. It gets to every fiber of who we are. When we think of the pursuit of righteousness, you could use the word truth interchangeably there. The the word righteousness, I'll just say this on the front end. I've said this before, dikaiosune in Greek, there is a relational component to this word. So often people just think that it means morally pure. And it does. There is there's a moral purity that comes with the word righteousness in the sense that God is righteous, so He is morally pure. But the other side of righteousness, the other side of the coin, is it's to stand in right relationship to what is right and good and true. So there is a relational component, so that when we're pursuing righteousness, we aren't simply pursuing moral purity, though we should be. We are pursuing a relationship with the righteous one who is drawing us into himself. And so we're wanting to live in community and relationship with one who is righteous, namely Christ. And so that when we pursue righteousness, we are pursuing truth because Jesus is truth. And that pursuit of truth is going to lead us to live out the precepts of Christ. I'm going to say something, and I mean it with all my heart. When the truth and precepts of Christ are informing our thinking, it makes so many things in our world that we like to color gray a bit more black and white. It's easier when everything is gray because there's wiggle room, but the precepts of Christ make certain things so black and white that we can't get away from it. Yeah, the issue of our day, the sexual ethic, what has culture done They've taken sexual ethics, and they've taken an eraser, and they've gone over all the black and done this so that now everything is gray and everything is questionable. It's not, and it's not bigotry to say so. It's not mean. Can you be mean about it? Sure. Anybody can be a jerk when they're trying to go about the right thing. But see, truth and precepts of Christ, what they do is actually they take away the gray in those areas, and they make it very black and white. This is, God's, this is God's commands for sexual ethic. This is okay. This is prohibited. But see, when we stand on truth, when we pursue righteousness, what that does for us is it puts us in a camp where we see things as they are. Does that mean it's easier? No. In fact, often it's harder, especially given the dynamic of relationships. And yet, that's exactly what truth does for us. And I want to I, I over communicate this point because it's important. Because I think there is a history of people standing on truth to the detriment of being loving and kind and charitable. You don't have to be a jerk to preach and teach and believe truth. You don't have to be mean. But here, I also want you to hear me say if you stand on truth and love and you're immovable from your position, you're not being a jerk, you're not being mean you're not being a bigot. You're being faithful. So here's how we pray in this. Holy Spirit, Father of mercies, help me to be merciful even when the stand, my stand on truth might seem hard. We're actually going to address this in just a moment in this par- paragraph. With those thoughts in mind, there's one I, simple idea I want for us to see It's this. The Christian is called to both flee and pursue. The Christian is called to both flee and pursue. So we're thinking about this. What Paul is doing, he's giving us the essence of a righteous life. And when we think about living righteously, living righteously is all about uh, the fight and flight. It's about putting on Christ and putting off the flesh. It's all these things we've already kind of breezed over. This notion that we're actively engaging in uh, whether we are fleeing from something that we ought not be in contact with or we're fighting something that needs us to be bearers of the sword of truth to bring truth to bear. So this is the, the this positive-negative, this do and don't, this flee and fight, this put off, put on, this positive-negative paragraph uh, uh, paradigm is the essence of Christian living. That's the art of Christian living, is action and avoidance. Taking action and seeking to avoid. Fleeing, fighting. Pursuing, avoiding. That's the art of Christian living, is navigating the pathway by the direction of the Holy Spirit of how we walk that line. And let's be praying for one another that we do it faithfully. Pray for me that I do that faithfully. I'll pray for you that you do that faithfully, that our goal in every opportunity is to glorify Christ, not display how much we know, not put somebody in their place, not show them how right we may, may be, but to glorify Christ. If we walk into conversations or contexts with our primary goal to glorify Christ, it does change how we interact in those contexts. Paul begins this little paragraph. He says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So right out of the gate, we have an express command that flee. The idea, it's an express command. It's not a suggestion. It's flee and keep fleeing. Constantly, in other words, constantly be fleeing. Constantly be fleeing. Constantly be in flight. Youthful passions. So when we think about what we're doing here, I want us to talk about this. Youthful passion, so often people get hung up on Timothy had a lust problem and that youth are, are typically dealing with issues of lust. That's not the issue here, okay? Uh, this, this passions is it the word normally used for sexual desire and lust? Yes, but in this context, it's broader than that. Paul is not simply telling Timothy and the church, hey, be mindful that you don't put yourself in compromising situations, though that's part of it. The idea here is a bit more broad, i.e. be fleeing sin in general. Be, Be fleeing the things that will draw you away, those things. It's funny that or interesting rather, funny is not the right word, that he will talk about not being quarrelsome and avoiding controversies. I think the The temptation of youth is just to get involved in every debate and give them equal opportunity instead of recognizing some are not worth having. Instead of doing what the Proverbs do that just says, don't answer a fool in their folly. Taking a step back and asking yourself, is this really worth having this conversation? Is this really worth going down that path? So when we think about youthful passions here, don't don't pigeonhole that to one idea. Think of just a general fleeing from things that would derail you in your pursuit of righteousness. So things that might incite anger, things that might incite, you know, lustful passions or desires, things that might incite slander or gossip. Just try to run a gauntlet of staying away from those things that would pull you away from a pursuit of righteousness. Because conversely, flee youthful passions. Again, express command, pursue and keep pursuing righteousness. But it doesn't stop there. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. I'm want to stop there for a second. So again, another express command, to pursue. So now you see this simultaneous action. We're not just fleeing, we're also pursuing something. So our flight from something is to pursue something else. And in this case, I like what he does here. The words he uses, if you were to flip over to Galatians, you might see these words or some variation of these words, in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What is he, what is, what is Paul instructing Timothy to do? To pursue the things, and we as the church are to follow this, to pursue the fruits that are cultivated by the indwelling Spirit. Because if we are not fleeing sin and seeking to live as honorably to the Lord, we're going to indulge it. We're going to indulge the flesh. And what better way to flee sin than to run to the very things that are counteractive to sin? If sin causes me to turn into myself, then let me turn to righteousness that causes me, that compels me to live rightly related to Christ. If sin compels me to trust in myself and just do what I think is right, let me turn to faith in Christ, that He might guide my thinking. If sin compels me to serve myself and do only what feels good to me, then let me run to love, true love, that calls me to lay down my life for the sake of others in Christ. All these things that we flee to or that we pursue, they counteract the power of sin in our lives because they are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's where I think is the most powerful part of this. Um, Maybe I shouldn't qualify it that way. Here's what I think is a very powerful part of this equation. I like that better. So, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Look at what he says. Look at the context along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Don't you love how when he's talking about your flight and your pursuit, he puts it in the context of community. You don't do it alone. You don't isolate yourself. You know why? Because Satan's favorite tool is isolation. When we begin to isolate, when we begin to get taken out of community and we turn in on ourselves, there's only one voice we're listening to, and it sounds a lot, sounds very familiar to us. It often sounds like our own voice, and this is the work of our enemy working lies into our minds and hearts, and we're all susceptible to that. So when we're fleeing and when we're pursuing, that is to be done in the context of community. We need to be fleeing and pursuing with other people for accountability, for one, but two, because it lightens the burden. Why do you think he gives this qualifier from a pure heart? It's interesting. The word there in Greek is the word we get our word cathartic from or catharsis. It means clean, means pure. I love that he uses this pure aspect because there's some hint of morality there, right? You can't, you can't look at that and not think people who are seeking the same type of, uh, of moral ethic as you are. But there's something a little bit deeper going on here. From a pure heart, that pure heart there is those who are purely devoted, singular in devotion, those who are genuinely committed to Christ. Who will we pursue righteousness with? those who genuinely want to pursue righteousness. That's who we give ourselves to. That's where we give our time. So when you think about communion, and I don't mean the Lord's Supper at this point, I mean our coming together, that that type of support for one another is vital to our growth. So here's the thing. We need to be regularly inviting others into our lives to walk with us, to pray with us, to share truth with us, and that we might walk and pray with them and share truth with them. That is the beauty of community. That's the beauty of what we're called, how we, how we flee and how we pursue is done in that context. Paul builds on this idea. Have nothing to do with, literally, avoid foolish, ignorant controversies, you know, they, that they breed quarrels. So that avoid or have nothing to do with it, the way that the ESV does it is another express command: avoid and keep avoiding. Don't avoid foolish controversies for a minute and then get involved with them. You should always avoid them. That's what Paul says, and it's interesting here um, because I think we can link this back if you if you let your eyes gaze up to verses fourteen and sixteen. Paul has already made a similar statement about not debating uh, myths or or silly word or word debates and all those other types of ignorant controversies. So, Paul's connecting this together, and whatever these ignorant and foolish controversies are, he doesn't state them expressly. He doesn't tell us expressly what these are. But we can imagine they're they're ideas that are are tertiary. Um, If I could put them in modern worship war conversation, people arguing over which music is biblical and and that I've actually had guys that I went to seminary with said, if you sing hymns, you're in sin because they're man-made. If you are not singing only psalms, you are sinning before the Lord on worship. And people would argue about it. Beloved of God, He's wrong, and that's a foolish controversy. To sp- I actually one time said there are people dying in the streets, and you're arguing over whether we should sing Amazing Grace. I mean, we're talking about Amazing Grace. Um, and so there are, there are ways in which we can get sucked into controversies, and, and at that time maybe it was genealogies. I know that's one thing that's present in Jude and in other books of the Bible where people would try to link themselves to people of the past, and so they would get involved in these controversies about genealogies. We don't have to pinpoint exactly what Paul means to understand, and what he means is these arguments that are not life-giving. They don't lead anywhere. What they lead is people walking away angry or upset, and one person smug thinking they're right, and one person smug thinking, this guy's an idiot. One person, you know, thinking that they're going to they're gonna shed light for all you ignorant people on what is the true way that we understand this, and those things just are not helpful. Are there times where we have to get firm for the truth and argue for it? Yeah. It's not every time. Surely. And those times where we have to gird up our loins into those conversations should be the exception and not the rule. We've heard it said, I know you've heard it said, you're not going to quarrel or argue anybody into the kingdom of God, and you're not. You're not. I was not won by arguments, and I'm sure you weren't either. I was won by someone adequately expressing the love of Christ for sinners, and that's what won Brad Williams. And that was a pretty tough nut to crack. So we avoid these things. Those quarrels, they lead to fleshly anger. Away, they lead away from God. That's what Paul's point is. Have nothing to do with them. Ignore controversy. I mean, have nothing to do with ignorant controversies. You know, they breed quarrels. And then he adds to that, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. I'm going to stop right there. And the Lord's servant should not be quarrelsome. Now, it's interesting here. By using this phrase, the Lord's servant, it's almost certain that Paul is talking about Timothy and most anyone who would be a teacher of the Word. So he's using this, the Lord's servant here, in kind of a a quasi-technical way. So the person who's going to be in a position of authority to do the correcting, right, that person must not be quarrelsome. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Now, this is not to say that this doesn't have application for everybody, but it does point out something that's important. I know Richard a few Sundays ago mentioned an overbearing pastor from the pulpit, and this is where we need leaders and shepherds who are not seeking out quarrels, but who are trying to lead with humility and grace and love and who are shepherding from a place of the truth. Of course, the broader application is is that none of us should be quarrelsome. None of us should. We should all be loving and kind and, and charitable. We should all be patient. And it's interesting that he mentions that word there. He says, "...and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind or gentle to everyone." that he should be able to teach, that he should patiently endure evil. In other words, he should be an emulation of Christ. And that able to teach, let's talk about what that is and isn't, right? When he says he should be able to teach, he is not saying he should be dynamic. When he says he should be able to teach, he is not saying he needs to be the most eloquent and polished. What he is saying is that this one, the Lord's servant, needs to have the capacity to explain the precepts of truth in such a way that people can understand them. If he's dynamic, praise God. That's helpful. If he's eloquent and polished, that's great. But being dynamic and being eloquent are not the equivalent to being able to teach. There are plenty of dynamic, eloquent people who are occupying pulpits on this very day who have no business being there. So, it's this notion that he is able to teach the Word in a way that people can understand. But he also says that he's patient, that he's patiently enduring evil. So, when we think about this notion of being patient, there's a a sense of charity. There's a sense of understanding that he understands that people don't come along at the same time and in the same way and at the same pace. Because quarrelsome people see they're mean, they tend to be divisive, they tend to lack compassion because they're just trying to win an argument. That's the very opposite of what it means to be patient and evil and understanding, seeking to love people well. So we're talking about patient, there's this idea that I'm willing to display charity, I'm willing to display love, I'm willing to watch and wait and know this is not up to me. This is the Holy Spirit's work. I get to be a vessel. And this is true of pastors and anybody who does life with anybody else. Oh, yeah, we live in a culture that has taught us that results are key. Results, results, results. And sometimes the slow growth where results come sparingly and slowly are the best. In fact, I'll say often that's the best. That produces the sweetest fruit. That produces the genuineness that we look for in Christ. But he says, patient in evil, patiently enduring evil, he says, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So when we think about this, we're, we're, we're looking at things that Jesus displayed in the incarnation, the very things that Jesus displayed. He looked at how he dealt with his disciples. It was patience, complete patience. So this is a sense of faithfulness that we get back to the heart of the pastoral epistles. This is that theme of faithfulness that's woven all the way through there. How are we faithful? I love that he mentions here in this context correcting opponents with gentleness. Paul is not saying, Timothy, opponents may come up. Paul is saying, Timothy, opponents will come. And when they do, how we correct them is of valuable or is of great importance so that when we correct opponents, that's going to be necessary. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is the thing I think is most uh, poignant for our time. Engage and don't run away from it. Don't try to back out of those tough conversations. Don't try to back away from those tough topics. Don't try to back away from the things that you know may be a bit controversial because of the position, but engage and engage gently. We don't have to come in with a hammer. I know sometimes we, we get flustered. If you're like me, I'm a passionate guy, and when I feel passionately about things, those passions can rise up. It's one reason I pace up here. I think if I stood still, I'd explode. But this is where we have to yield to Scripture and not personality type to say correcting opponents is necessary. It has value in the kingdom. It has to be done, but it needs to be done with gentleness. Being mean is never a good option. Hey, are we going to blow it from time to time with people? Yes, I have. I've done that. I've let let my passions get the best of me, and I've blown it. And yet, here's the beauty of repentance and humility, to be able to own those things and say, I blew it. I got upset. Here's what I was trying to say. We may not win them at all, but humility and gentleness and kindness goes a lot further than not being that way. So that we repent and we move on. The goal of correction, Paul lays it out very clearly here. The goal of correction, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. What is the goal of, of any sort of correction? It's got to be repentance. It has to be. If we're just correcting to show them we're wrong, that's wrong. If we're just correcting for some other fleshly reason, that's wrong. The goal of any correction is always for us to come back around to the truth to see people turn. That's what he says here, to come to a knowledge of the truth. So the goal of correction is repentance, repenting away from what is false to what is true. It's always going to be the goal. And if that's not our goal, we need to step back and ask forgiveness and ask for grace for that to become our goal, is to see people repent. Because what happens in repentance? When we walk in repentance, what we're doing is we're turning from our flesh, we're turning from the world, we're turning from sin and the devil, and we're turning to truth to embrace that truth so it does change how we think and how we live. And that's powerful. It's a powerful reminder that repentance is meant to put us back on the pathway toward truth and away from what is false. leading to a knowledge of the truth, and he ends it by saying, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So what is repentance and coming to a knowledge of the truth? It's trying to get somebody back into their right mind, quite literally, to regain their senses, to regain what is sensible and right, to regain what is true. And Paul is actually making a statement here about reality, that those who are away, who have been led astray, who are walking in falsehood, have in fact been ensnared by the devil. So, when we're looking at people who embrace lies and it makes our blood boil, let us stop for a second, take a step back, and recognize something. This brother or, or this man or woman has been ensnared by the devil. This man or woman is, is being duped by lies and are being fed on things that are not true. And so now my opponent is not that man or woman. It's the philosophies behind them, those things that are perpetuating in their lives these awful decisions and awful conclusions because they are under the spell of a lie. This is not to relieve them of responsibility of their actions. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying if they're committing sin, they're somehow not responsible for that. What I'm saying is, is our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. And when we see people who are lost in what is false, we need to correct the philosophy behind them and not come at them like a sledgehammer. It's easy to get after people. That ad hominem attack is so common that's to the man to just attack the person without thinking about there's an idea behind there. There's a philosophy behind there. There's there's something wrong behind there that I need to get at. The Puritans were great at this. I know they get a bad rap in our day, but they are fantastic. I mean, some of them can be kind of weird. But that's okay. I'm I'm pretty weird. Um, But they were great at saying, "What what is the sin behind the sin? They were so good at examining that. What is the sin behind the sin? What is... The philosophy behind the sin. And beloved, if we could start doing that, this is not just true of pastors, this is true of all of us. It's bringing people back into the realm of truth. Because correction leads to repentance, leads to knowledge of the truth, leads to the regaining of senses, leads to escaping from the snare of the devil that's a powerful thing. Why do we engage? Well, for one, truth matters. Why do we engage? Because we are dealing with a culture that is ensnared by the devil. Why do we engage? Because it's worth the risk to see people rescued from false thinking. Why do we engage? Because we love them enough to do it. So when we think about this, what what does it mean to pursue righteousness? It's all this stuff wrapped up neatly in a bow to resist, or I'm sorry, to flee youthful passions, to, to avoid foolish and ignorant controversies, to not be quarrelsome, to be kind, to have faith, to have love, to be patient, to correct with gentleness, to see people repent and turn to a knowledge of the truth, to see people come to their senses and away from the snares of the devil, so that we can walk arm in arm with them as brothers and sisters, and as we limp along depending solely on Jesus Christ, that we come to others who need to be rescued from all these things. The reality is is this, is that we're never going to flee sin if we aren't pursuing righteousness. We will never flee sin if we aren't pursuing righteousness. The converse of that is true. If we're not going to pursue righteousness, we're not going to flee sin. This is, as I said before, kind of a symbiotic relationship. So, when we think about the Christian life, it's a constant flight and fight. It's a pursuit while we avoid. You know, it's kind of like if you watch football and you see a a running back get the ball, take the handoff, and he cuts right through his blocking. What's his primary goal? He's pursuing the end zone, but he's also avoiding people trying to take him out. And so, he's juking and jiving the whole way. You know, he's doing this, and he's because he's trying to flee that which would take him down. In the Christian life, I'm not trying to trivialize it at all, so please don't, don't take that from that. It's this idea that even while we pursue, we're fleeing, we're avoiding. We're avoiding the very obstacles that would try to take us out and keep us from achieving our goal. It's not enough to merely flee sin if we aren't turning to Christ, and it's not enough to say, I'm turning to Christ if I'm not fleeing sin. Love for Christ and his people means that we're consistently looking to press into him while we deny our flesh. It means that as we take up our cross, we live with joy because we're being renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the pursuit of righteousness is the constant yes to Christ and no to the flesh. And when we think about sanctification, that's what it means. Constantly saying yes to Christ and no to the flesh. And in those moments where we do say yes to the flesh, that we repent regain our senses, turn to a knowledge of the truth, and we move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this paragraph this morning. It's truth, it's beauty, it's depth. Thank you for the ways in which you shepherd us so faithfully. God, forgive us for the ways in which we've allowed black and white things to become gray. And God, also forgive us for the ways in which we try to make gray things black and white Father, keep us from foolish controversies and being quarrelsome, knowing that that doesn't win anybody, doesn't help anybody. Help us to choose our stand for truth on principles of love and humility. And God, help us to serve one another with grace and humility and help us to be patient. Be with us, we pray, and continue to help us be vessels of honor. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.